The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm grateful to have Dr. Roxana Dahagani as my guest. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invite. Dr. Roxana Dahagani is Senior Lecturer in Law at the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University. Roxana recently co-chaired the launch of the British Society of Criminology Vulnerability Network at the University of South Wales. We start off everyone with this question. In 30 seconds, how would you describe vulnerability theory? I think it has the potential to transform how we view allocation of state resources. And I look at it specifically in relation to the criminal justice system. Um, But I think the really important point that Feynman makes is that everyone is vulnerable. um, And that's the kind of baseline. And instead, we should look at points of or aspects of resilience. I think that for me, is vulnerability theory. How did you first become interested in vulnerability theory? So my PhD focused on decision-making around vulnerable suspects. So that's kind of a term that's used. And sometimes I feel a little bit of a conflict when I refer to like one group as vulnerable, given that I use vulnerability theory. And I think there's a lot of potential in vulnerability theory. Um, But I was looking at vulnerable suspects in police detention, and in particular, the safeguards that are provided um, to those suspects. So as part of that PhD, I was looking at police decision-making, but also how vulnerability is defined and interpreted by police officers. And in the the chapter on on vulnerabilities, I kind of look at how vulnerability is defined within academic literature and within policy and more generally. And I was recommended some of Feynman's work and I I read through it and I, I find it really helpful kind of making the argument that and it relates to a paper then that I've only just managed to publish five years later a paper that looks at kind of this this idea that every single suspect indeed everyone is vulnerable and instead of like separating someone out as a a particular category there's this kind of cause to recognize the ways in which for example police detention can remove reduce or deplete resilience that argument is sort of contained within my thesis and within my book, but it was developed more so in, in a recent article in uh, social and legal studies. So yeah, it was kind of first or second year of the PhD, looking at how vulnerability is defined. And obviously, um, Martha Feynman's work is one of the kind of important, very important studies and writings in relation to vulnerability and how vulnerability is defined. And then I just kind of loved it from then on in when I finally got my head around it. And it's not that difficult to understand, but I think for a lot of people, kind of moving away from this idea of a vulnerable person or a vulnerable group can be quite difficult if that's the the discourse that you're used to. Can you tell me a little bit about the difference between how vulnerability is defined in policy versus academia? So I think the, the term vulnerability is used quite heavily within policy um, and then in practice, and I'm, I'm kind of talking about criminal the criminal justice system um i also look at things kind of social justice more generally so usually you know, resources are allocated or decisions are made in relation to you know, vulnerable people or vulnerable groups and that, that's how those decisions are made because they are seen as particularly vulnerable 
Um, and the way in which it's used in policy and in some academic writing, as I said, kind of identifies a particular group or individuals as vulnerable. And that can both be you know, to provide them with resources, but also to you know, control and surveil them. Within the academic literature, we say there's more nuance to it, but there are kind of multiple ways in which vulnerability has been used as a term. So to refer to, for example, innate conditions, things that happen over the life course, pregnancy, young age, old age, disability, uh, and so on, or re- referring to situational circumstantial issues. So for example, being a Roma person or being a single parent or being potentially working class, and that means something different in the, in the US context. So even within the academic literature, there is obviously a difference in, in terms of how vulnerability is used. And I think some of the, I mean, at least some of the problems that I see within policy and practice in terms of, you know, who do we define as vulnerable and what support do they receive? And actually, I find that Feynman's theory is very helpful for saying, well, actually, we're all vulnerable. And instead, we need to kind of, you know, it's not this kind of homogenous group of people with, with similar characteristics that are vulnerable. But instead, we need to accept that we're all vulnerable, indeed, over the life course that our resilience may shift. And depending on the circumstance, our res- resilience may change. Um, and to instead examine what, you know, how the state can provide resilience to individuals. I think obviously that is more nuanced than perhaps policymakers would like. You know, it's kind of nice to be able to identify what this is one group and we need this targeted provision for this one group. So I think it is possible to reimagine a world where policy decisions are based on human vulnerability. And I think the COVID pandemic um, kind of brings that to the fore and kind of highlights to all of us that actually we are all vulnerable, even if we might think that we that we aren't. But again, I think that there is a difficulty, I mean, at least when I've interacted with policymakers, even sometimes more generally with academic research, they just want to know kind of facts, figures, numbers, <laughs> and don't want any nuance and don't want any of the academic arguments. I think that, again, is, is one challenge. Tell me a little bit about the Society of Criminology Vulnerability Research Network and what you hope to accomplish with it and what its goals are. So myself, Harriet Pierpoint, and uh, she's an associate professor at University of South Wales, and Chris Bath, who is the chief executive of the National Appropriate Adult Network. And I'll explain the National Appropriate Adult Network is kind of an umbrella organisation, a membership organisation for appropriate adults, and appropriate adults provide support to these you know, so-called vulnerable suspects. The network sort of emerged out of our discussions, in particular that there is a gap in vulnerability more generally. There are lots of people kind of examining vulnerability um, and and different aspects thereof. Um, But there is also this gap between academia, policy and practice. And we thought that one way to sort of bridge that gap would be to to set up this network. At the moment, I mean, I think as with a lot of these networks, they are the membership is predominantly academic and so we have some practitioners and policymakers but yeah the idea was really to, to bridge that gap and to get academia policy and practice in conversation with one another we recognize so obviously with using the term vulnerability that is you know in, and i think these similar issues have come up in in conversations that that we've had at, you know in relation to the vulnerability and human condition initiative vulnerability is kind of a contested and loaded term and we acknowledge that but it's a term that's used both within, you know, it's kind of used and widely accepted within academia, policy and practice. 
the network is sort of centered around vulnerability more broadly. Um, I mean, that is a very broad theme. At the moment, we have a number of kind of themes within that. So one looks at the vulnerable accused. And again, we take quite a broad view of vulnerability. It's not just the kind of innate vulnerabilities or situational vulnerabilities necessarily. Um, there's vulnerable victims. Again, I mean, I can't speak for that particular theme because I'm, I'm not involved um, directly in it. Placing vulnerability is another theme. And so, I mean, at the moment, we're still at the very early stages of the network. We had to postpone the launch due to COVID and, and so on and so forth. So we are, I think, now starting to really build the network and hopefully in the next few years, manage to connect people. For example, academics can engage with policy and practice, perhaps with the, you know, with, with the aim of applying for grants, co-writing papers and so on. You talked a little bit about these three different themes of the vulnerable accused, vulnerable victims, and placing vulnerability. What types of conversations do you hope to foster around these three themes? Are they the only three themes or are there other themes? Yeah, there are the three that come off the top of my head. Um, so apologies to the other theme leads. They're very important work that I, you know, that, that it hasn't stuck in my, my mind. The, the theme that I'm most heavily involved in is the vulnerable accused. And a part of that, and this kind of just didn't quite come out of the theme itself. It happened before the theme was established at the start of the pandemic as a result of conferences, workshops, seminars, and so on being cancelled and postponed. One aspect of my job that I enjoy the most is the opportunity to interact with people, to exchange ideas, to improve ideas. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I really enjoy being part of the vulnerability and the human condition network, just that, that opportunity to engage with other people, sometimes outside of my kind of direct subject area. Um, and I feel like that's a really strong network of, of a community of scholars. Um, and I really love being part of that. And, and at the start of the pandemic, I felt like that was kind of missing from my life, it, it, you know, or from my working life in the sense that lots of things have been cancelled and postponed. And so I put a tweet out, asked if um, anyone that, researched in and around the area of kind of the vulnerable suspect and defendant again broadly defined um, whether anyone would be interested in kind of having a regular zoom meeting presenting papers discussing ideas asking each other kind of questions and so on there was actually quite a bit of response to that more more than I had expected so that runs regularly alternating between a Wednesday and a Friday once a month that's been fantastic so that's part of the activities now of the vulnerable accused theme. Along with that then uh, Dr Sam Fairclough at Birmingham Law School in, in the UK set up a blog on defending vulnerability that might have made its rounds on Twitter, you may have seen it. So again we take that kind of quite broad view of vulnerability. We'd be really happy to, to get blog submissions under the kind of very broad theme um, so Sam took the lead on that and I'm a co-editor along with a few others. Those have been the activities of the Vulnerable Accused theme so far, but really our, our interest is on the ways in which suspects and defendants are either perceived as vulnerable, you know, so taking that very narrow view of vulnerability, or the ways in which the criminal justice system places kind of obstacles and barriers or, or kind of deliberately or inadvertently seeks to remove resilience. And then as Part of that, although not again, not entirely connected with it, I've got plans to produce an edited collection on kind of vulnerable suspects and defendants from a domestic and European perspective. And again, some of the submissions there 
examine vulnerability in a kind of broader context. So again, looking at the structural issues um, and assuming that, that everyone is vulnerable and instead that there are points of kind of resilience. So there's been quite a bit of activity at the moment. It's all, I, I feel like it's all kind of in the early stages, but I think one of my ambitions at least is to try to kind of chip away a little bit at this, the, the discourse of like, this is that, you know, these vulnerable groups with these particular characteristics and instead kind of flip the focus to, you know, that ever. And I think people are starting to come around to that. You know, everyone is vulnerable and instead that there are these points of um, resilience or aspects of resilience. But I feel like, you know, the, it's a slow process. And I think anytime there is a theory that is kind of fundamentally changing the way in which we view things, um, it does take people a little bit of time to come around to it. But I think that the work of the Vulnerability and Human Condition Initiative, and in particular, again, like just the kind of very supportive community of scholars, I think the more people then that engage with that, but get the message out there and speak to others, I think there is sometimes this misunderstanding of what, what vulnerability theory is. Um, and so I think part of my work within that network hopefully will be getting people to think more broadly about what vulnerability is, what it means, what its implications are. Can you speak a little bit more to resilience and what that is and how the state can provide it? Yeah, so I mean one of the ways in which I've kind of examined resilience um, or at least one of the ways in which I've interpreted this the notion of resilience is through for example access to criminal legal aid I mean, in some ways, I mean, the US is very different in that you've got a public defender system in the UK. I can speak for England and Wales. Um, there are variations within Northern Ireland and Scotland. But in England and Wales, everyone, I mean, in theory, has access to a criminal defence lawyer. It depends at what, so either a solicitor at the kind of le- the lesser end, um, so of the lower courts, although they do have what we call rights of audience at a higher court or a barrister in our crown courts. So in theory, everyone has access to a lawyer, but not everyone necessarily can actually access a lawyer, for example, through kind of lack of financial provision. The criminal legal aid, there are lots of problems with it, um, in particular, the very restrictive tests that were applied to ascertain whether someone can access criminal legal aid. And it has also been cut by the state. Um, so if you think about resilience in terms of access to lawyers, more generally legal aid has been has been cut quite heavily um, across, for example, family law, housing, education, health and social care and criminal justice in recent years. So in my view, for example, lawyers can provide resilience. Legal education could potentially provide resilience. Someone's kind of just generally economic and social resources can provide resilience. But similarly, the state can provide that. So, for example, through access to criminal legal aid. And and that's one way if you think about the the criminal defendant or the criminal accused um, who may not actually be a criminal at all because we haven't proven that he or she is beyond a reasonable doubt but if we just take the position of the criminal defendant within the kind of often very complex alien bewildering confusing criminal justice system I mean the law even as lawyers I think sometimes you know academic lawyers the we provisions that we read and we think I, I really don't know what that means or it takes us time to kind of unpick and, and interpret these provisions you know the lawyer should in theory be there 
to ensure that someone's case is um, appropriately and, and effectively and seriously defended, at least within an adversarial system, as in England and Wales and, and the US. But obviously not everyone has access to that. And then that's partly where the state has kind of stripped back. I mean, we the welfare state in, in England and Wales has been kind of continuously stripped back. Um, and so they can provide resilience through, you know, for example, understanding complex legal matters and communicating that to their client and ensuring that the client makes their decisions as best they can. And I'm currently examining this in the guilty plea context at the moment. So this idea that people make, they plead guilty autonomously. And I'm writing a paper with two colleagues to kind of challenge that assumption. So actually people do not make, and again, drawing on um, amongst others, Martha's work to say, well, people don't actually make these decisions autonomously. And there are ways in which the state can provide resilience. And obviously there are ways in which, you know, the simple existence of a guilty plea system can create pressures that can remove the resilience of the, the, the criminal accused. What impact do you hope that the network will have on either, you know, the, the academic world, the policy world, both? In terms of what I want the network to achieve, I guess it's really early days at the moment, but I think the initial idea is just to connect academics practitioners, policymakers, um, potentially within you know, shared interests and shared themes. So one of the things that people can subscribe to the mailing list and can get information about events. And that's one way I think in which we will encourage collaboration. But there's also the possibility of kind of becoming a full member. Again, there's no cost involved um, and listing your areas of interest. And I think through those areas of interest and through a website, the hope, at least, is that you can look on the website and, and see who else has got some shared interests and then perhaps approach them, um, whether to co-author a paper or to get involved in a grant. Um, I'm not quite sure how funding works within the US, but the way in which funding is allocated in the UK, I mean, as with most other places, it is highly competitive. And sometimes if you've got an empirical project, so for example, a a project that involves observations and interviews or even a project that that may involve statistical analysis and so on those that you know often in order to have the time and the money to do those things we have to apply for funding and to apply for funding we need support from for example policymakers or practitioners to say yes you know we will take these findings forward or we will provide this person with access to this particular, you know, whether it's to place detention or a prison. And the, I think one of the ideas behind the network is to enable those discussions, to enable those discussions to happen, to enable people to get access to certain policymakers and practitioners who are kind of open to supporting these projects. Also, if, for example, policymakers and practitioners have, if there's a, a particular funded project or a project or a report that needs to be written or if they're looking for experts in a particular area the idea is that the network will then hopefully then provide that information to policy and practice so they can have a look down and see you know who within academia is working on a particular subject area or a particular topic and then can approach them so that yeah mainly just kind of connect the dots and I think also to have this conversation I think again what we say and the way in which we frame our ideas and how we communicate those within academia 
I mean, sometimes we're working on quite abstract things. Um, you know, it's a theory and it's very important. It helps us understand the world, but may not necessarily always connect with policy and practice. And I'm not saying that it always has to. Um, I think there's a very clear space for theoretical ideas in and of themselves. But sometimes, particularly for those of us who engage in empirical work, um, and socio-legal work, I mean, sometimes I find the ability, the opportunity to speak to a practitioner or a policymaker might enable me to think differently about the problem that I'm trying to solve or might give me their perspective. And I might not always agree with their perspective, but I think those perspectives nevertheless need to be acknowledged, even if I do not agree with them. And sometimes in disagreement, um, I'm able to kind of more clearly defend my own position or more clearly set out my argument. I know what the counter arguments are and I know how to respond to those so I think even just having those conversations is very helpful. Well this sounds like a really exciting way to foster collaboration can you tell me a little bit more about the benefits of membership? There are a few things obviously getting access to the the mailing list um, and the event so one benefit is the opportunity to apply for funding to organize events I mean at the moment those are obviously going to be solely online but our hope is that if we find that it's safe for for people to be in a room together again um that we would kind of allow bids for um for fund you know, for funding applications to organize events so members can kind of bid to receive funding for events the collaboration is one one benefit of the network and the ability to have those conversations um with you know, between academia policy and practice we also have a article prize that has very generously been so 100 i think it's 100 pounds of book vouchers from the international review of victimology so there's an article prize for broadly to, uh, an article broadly defined dealing with vulnerability so it can be vulnerability theory it can be vulnerability in the psychological context it could be vulnerable victims defendant witnesses young people so vulnerability broadly defined and members again we're still trying to figure out exactly what the criteria should be for this prize but certainly members could apply to or could be nominated for the article prize at the moment our main focus is on events on connecting individuals and groups of individuals and giving people space to as i say discuss ideas the longer term and i mentioned this before but the, i think the longer term goal is kind of collaborative bids so for bids for collaborative funding Connecting people is so important, especially right now when we are all remote. You can't just pop over to a colleague's office and chat about something. So I'm sure that it's even more appreciated by members and by folks who are involved with this. Is there anything else that you'd like listeners to know about the network? I think, as I said, it's still quite early days in terms of where we're going with it. And I also feel like the pandemic has sort of required us or forced us to change our priorities somewhat so we did we've had one event so far which was supposed to be at the the British Society of Criminology conference in July that then the conference got cancelled the panel that were due to speak um, to that particular theme at at the conference then recorded a a YouTube video the benefit of Zoom I, I find is that you know for example this conversation couldn't have happened short of me well, it could have happened, but Zoom kind of makes that easier. It doesn't necessarily require require that we you know, travel across the, the globe, essentially, to connect with one another. 
but I think there is a lot to be said for you know the little moments like over lunch having a conversation over lunch over a cup of coffee or going for a walk with someone but I think the, the aim is really when, when things sort of settle down a bit that we can um, meet up, discuss things, get to know one another, explore ideas, have conversations. And certainly, I mean, that's what I find so. So I've been to quite a few of the Vulnerability and Human Condition, Condition Initiative events. Um, I think one or two in Leeds, one in Nottingham, one in Pin Emory in Atlanta. And, you know, just the, be able to have conversations with people that do not necessarily research in criminal justice, you know, family law or commercial law or social care. I mean, I really value that. And I think that, I mean, that space cannot necessarily be replicated, um, but we can try to come close to it, I guess. What would you like listeners to remember about our interview today? But I think that the listeners are, I think, inevitably going to already be engaged with vulnerability theory I would urge them if they're not to have a read of both Martha's work and the work of others I mean her work's been used quite extensively in a vast array of of kind of legal fields so mental capacity bioethic intersex embodiment kinship reproduction criminal justice lots and lots of different areas I'm sure there are lots more that I have family law in particular I would urge, as I said, urge scholars to kind of engage with with the theory and it might take them, I feel like, I mean, it took me a little while to properly get my head around it. But once the penny drops, the penny really drops, then you're like, wow, this thing is, this is fantastic. The other takeaway is that in some ways we're becoming a bit more disconnected, but there are ways in which we can connect with one another. And I feel like, you know, Martha has done over her career, done a great, I mean, a fantastic, phenomenal job of bringing people together. Um, and that was one of the things that really stuck with me. Um, so when I was back, uh, I was presenting at one of the vulnerability events in Nottingham. And that was back in, it was about a year ago, actually, roughly a year ago. It's back in October 2019. And I did, I remember saying to Martha, how, you know, I would, I'd love to set up a network and I'd love to get people in conversation with one another. But the pressures of academic work are such that, you know, there maybe aren't the, 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 like the incentives aren't necessarily there to set up a research network. Um, and Mar- I mean, I can't remember Martha's exact words to me, but they were along the lines of, you know, that this, this is important you know, in terms of just that the network of scholars bringing people together. This is really important, not only for you know, the development of your own work and your own thoughts and ideas and your own skills and Kind of soft skills and knowledge but also um, for the development of others and that this idea that the academia is or at least should be a community and I think that the kind of neoliberal university tries to have us think that we are separate atomized individuals that we should only be out for ourselves that it's all about competition and actually what Martha has kind of shown us and I mean at least told me is that there is great value in you know and I, I've always known this, but sometimes, the, as I said, the incentives aren't there. There's great value in bringing people together and connecting with others. You know, so for anyone wanting to set up a research network, it is quite a bit of work. I think the other thing that I've largely benefited from is the support of others. Um, I would not have been able to set this network up on my own. I can say that categorically, but with you know, within a team, there are about six of us on the steering group. And obviously we all have different ideas as to how things should be done. And I find that conversation also, you know, the kind of collaborative decision-making really 
useful. Sometimes I'll think that an idea works and often people say, well, no, I've done this before. It doesn't work and, and you should try this instead. So again, I would urge anyone that, that is thinking of setting up a research network or research group just to go ahead and do it see what comes of it and you know it might not things might not work out exactly as, as you planned life so, sometimes gets in the way but I've really thoroughly enjoyed it so as stressful as it has been <laughs> at times. Thank you again for being here today and for taking the time to chat with me about this. You can see a link to the network and to some of Dr. Dehagani's work in the description of this episode on SoundCloud. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.